0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to an episode in Grinnell College's Authors and Artists podcast. This is something we're doing at the NBN with our friends at Grinnell College. I happen to be a graduate of Grinnell College, and today I'm very pleased to say that we'll be talking with another graduate of Grinnell College who is now a professor there, Sarah Purcell. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Marshall. Nice to be here. Absolutely. My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, I usually begin with a question, but I'm going to begin with a a kind of confession. I I was in Washington, D.C. about 20 years ago, and I had never spent a lot of time there. And I was noticing this is when they were building the World War II memorial right in the center of the thing. And there's also a little D.C. war memorial, which I think is for World War I. And I thought to myself while standing on the mall, why isn't there a memorial for the Civil War? And then it occurred to me that the entire Mall is a memorial to the (laughs) Civil War, Um, with Lincoln there at one end and the Capitol at the other, and you have Grant in front of the Capitol. One of the things I was interested in doing some research for this uh, interview is that these things were built very late. Like The the Lincoln Memorial was built when in, like,
1: 1920? Yeah, yes, 20th century.
0: Yeah, and then Grant, similarly. That was a late thing. Um, and I think this speaks to the topic of your book and the attempts of Americans really to kind of come to terms with what had happened and it took them a while to process it. I guess we're still processing it. Um, but I was, I I was very interested in this, in, in, in the idea of public commemoration of such a traumatic event, but, and so I found the book fascinating. So maybe you could begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, about me? Well, as you said, I'm a professor at Grinnell College, and I am a graduate of Grinnell, um, and I am a historian of U.S. history, um, specializing largely in the 18th and 19th centuries. And um, I have a longtime interest in memorials and memory and um, have previously worked on the American Revolution and the Revolutionary War, and then have transitioned over the past uh, decade or so, a little bit plus, um, into this uh, new work. On the Civil War because I've been teaching both periods for many years, um, and and it's just been very exciting to fuse my teaching and my research. And um, I grew up um, a native of Iowa, but I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, and then went to college at Cornell, and so have kind of um, lived in various regions of the country. Went to graduate school in New England, so um, it's it's been an, an interesting ride, and I'm I'm very um, excited about this new book and the opportunity to share it with you.
0: So I have to ask, what is it like, and I'm sure you saw this question coming, <laughs> What is it like to have been a student at Grinnell College and then be a professor there? <laughs>
1: it's, it's great. I mean, I'm true. I'm truly used to it by now. I've been there for 21 years as a professor. Um, but when I first arrived as a professor, there were still plenty of people in my department who had been my mentors and professors. But it was fine. I, I think partly um, it helped that I taught at Central Michigan University for three years before mm-hmm. I went to Grinnell, so I had a, a well-established self-identity as a faculty member. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time I went went to Grinnell to be on the faculty but um I think also I don't know anyone who knew me as an undergraduate um, was not exactly shocked shall we say that I became a history professor. <laughs> I was pretty much a giant history nerd uh, from day one um, at Grinnell and so I think um, it kind of fit my profile um in- including too many of my faculty members so um, and and I um, and the way the academic job market functions and has functioned for decades now, it's certainly not something I ever could have planned on or expected yeah. in my life or my career, but I feel extremely fortunate to have been able to be a faculty member at the college that I love the most. It's Well, it's, you're,
0: they're very they're very lucky to have you. I can oh, already thanks. tell that. That's just, it's wonderful that you're there and it's kind of a storybook kind of thing. And, and I, I think it's just great. So let's move on to the book itself. Uh And the name of the book is Spectacle of Grief, Public Funerals and Memory in the Civil War Era. And it will be out from UNC Press in April. Is that correct? Yes,
1: April 12th, I believe, is currently scheduled. Right. So the lucky listeners get a preview of what's to come.
0: And could you tell me why you wrote Spectacle of Grief and what you were hoping to accomplish with the book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I said, I, I have a long-term um, interest as a historian in public memory and particularly the way that memory of warfare shapes U.S. national identity. Um, and that's a subject I explored in um, the book that came out of my doctoral dissertation, um, which was about public memory of the Revolutionary War. And in the course of that book, which is called Sealed with Blood, um, I did... Encounter um, public funerals um, as one of the mechanisms of uh, commemorating important people related to the Revolutionary War, people like George Washington and Richard Montgomery. Um, In any case, I was sensitized to that topic and had done some work on public funerals. And as I said, I. um, Civil War and Reconstruction. I've been teaching it for many years, um, 23 years at at Central Michigan and Grinnell. Um, I was digging more and more into possibilities for research. I was looking at Civil War memory, steeping myself in that that very interesting uh, field of history in Civil War memory, and trying to do something that I think U.S. historians don't do enough of, which is to connect the ideas and scholarship in one Time period, the early republic, to a related field, uh, Civil War and Reconstruction, memory and uh, commemoration, and kind of look at how those eras speak to one another. Um, I also just got really interested in spectacle funerals. I, at one point, was considering writing a book about funerals across US history. I don't know Judy Garland's funeral, uh, Buffalo <laughs> Bill, there are a whole bunch of really interesting later funerals. But once I got onto these um, Civil War funerals, I really started honing in and I um, perceived that it was a way to examine how Civil War memory helped to shape um, lots of different battles over U.S. national identities and the way people related to the reconstitution of the United States after the Civil War. Um, And very importantly, it was one that really hadn't been explored all that much. Um, A lot of people know about important Civil War funerals because of the presidents. So people know something, if anything, about Abraham Lincoln's funeral, which was enormous, Um, maybe about Ulysses S. Grant, um, possibly about Jefferson Davis. So presidential funerals are a thing that people and scholars have paid attention to. But I quickly discovered that um, there are quite a few other very important figures who had funerals, quite, quite significant funerals, public funerals that were huge spectacles, huge rituals of politics. And um, they really weren't, were fairly overlooked. So I really um, honed in on, it brought together all of my interests in memory, commemoration, um, political rituals, material culture. I love newspapers and press reports. And it was just a a great topic of research. Um, It sounds quite morbid. Uh, You know, it, it has a, it has a, sort of morbid twist to it. And I've spent a long time um, sort of, you know, watching people recoil a little bit when I tell them my book is about funerals, yeah. but they're really very, very important. And so I, I, the more I got into it, the more I could feel that I had something to say about civil war memory um, and about the United States as a, as a result. So
0: I, I want to put this in the right frame. These funerals, I did not know this before I read your book, are not like the funerals that we have today. So Bob Dole just died. Right about mm-hmm. a great american statesman you know he fought in world war ii hansen just like me um I don't remember hearing anything about Bob funeral. <laughs> I, I assume he's somewhere and there was some commemoration. Did he lie and stay? I don't okay. know. I just... yeah,
1: actually, there, there are echoes of these funerals. I think we have a lot more media now and a lot more um, popular cultural fragmentation. So you can go through your daily life and not hear about it perhaps a little bit more easily than people in the 19th century who had... Um, a big proliferation versus the 18th century, but a lot less media saturation than we have now. Um, many fewer things. But yeah, Bob Dole um, did lie in state in the in the U.S. Capitol and he had um, a funeral at the Washington National Cathedral that was attended by the president and a lot of other dignitaries. Um, it was somewhat smaller because of COVID protocols. Mm-hmm. Right now we're, we're a little bit scaled down. Um, the other recent funeral that w- was fairly notable um, was Colin Powell, who died of yeah, COVID. Bell- yeah, And he, um, he did not lie in state, um, but he did have a large funeral that was televised live on CNN and all the television networks. Um, and so I, I think it probably was noted, but it's easier to miss. It's a little harder to have an event these days, that's completely collective in the same way that um, events were in the 19th century. At the same time, we have a lot more simultaneous coverage now. But I will say there there are echoes of the past. So people do lie in state. Um, the first person to lie in state is the subject of the first chapter of my book. Uh, I going to come Had right recall. to
0: him. Yeah. I mean, um, one, of, one of the things I wanted to point out is that these funerals are not like the funerals we have today. Uh, yeah. they, they are big, multi-day multi-territory that the corpse is taken all over the place sometimes and kind of introduced to crowds. And it's not like the way we do it today.
1: not Not the average funeral today, no. I will say I do think there are a few echoes in some places and times for very famous people and for political leaders, the types of people that the book covers, both political, and social activists. Um, you know, the the afterward, for instance, talks about John Lewis's funeral, uh, Congressman John Lewis, mm-hmm. his body did travel. I mean, it traveled across the country um, and was driven through the streets and was applauded by, by people. Oh. But it wasn't the probably tens of thousands of people who did such things in the 19th century. So it's kind of a, an echo of a previous era that we have just a little bit. And it doesn't make as much effect on the public consciousness as it did in the 19th century. And I don't think it affects politics quite as much now, or nearly as much now, as it did in the 19th century.
0: Yes, it, it, it does. not. I think I can say for some confidence it, it does not. Right. Um, so, so let's begin with Henry Clay. He died in 1852. And uh, if I if I have my dates right, that's before the Civil War.
1: Yes, it is. Yes. <laughs>
0: so why did you begin the book with Henry Clay? Who was Henry Clay? And why did you begin the book with him?
1: Yeah, well, so um, Henry Clay was a longtime um, congressman and senator. He was a four-time unsuccessful presidential candidate, um, kind of known as one of the uh, most uh, famous also rans of presidential history. But, he, um, previous to his death, he had been in the U.S. Senate for a number of decades. Um, he, was had a long career stretching back to the 18-teens all the way to the 1850s, um, was known as the great compromiser, in quotes, um, was someone who sort of uh, probably prolonged the career of the institution of slavery in the United States by brokering the Missouri Compromise and then the Compromise of 1850. Um, so I start with Clay because of two things. One is it's really important to understand um, the legal up to the u.s Civil War and looking at his funeral is a way to show how anxiety over the Union breaking apart was expressed in political ritual. so the the question of if the great compromiser is dead how will the nation survive and you know spoiler alert it didn't necessarily work out <laughs> so well right after that um, and so that's that's one thing is that it really is a it, it's materially a good way to look at that question um, just as you wouldn't study the u.s Civil War without out looking at the run-up to it in the 1850s, it's important to see that um, in the creation of the political rituals and even the memory of the war. Um- But also, and crucially important, Clay's funeral is the one that sets the the template for all other public funerals in the book. Um, It was really the key funeral that switched from the kind of traditional public funeral like George Washington and other figures from the revolutionary era, which were important and large. um, And it kind of kickstarted a new era of an even bigger public funeral with the technology and the press coverage and um, even the funerary technology, all kinds of material culture production for the 19th century. So um, basically, you have to start there because it's really, really important. And that's where the story of these great politicized public funerals that are trying to work out issues of the Civil War and relate them to the American nation itself starts. That's where the story starts. So it has to start there.
0: Yeah, um, I want to digress for just a second and I will um, betray my ignorance. I, I remember talking to uh, a historian of the early republic and he told me that it wasn't sure at all that the early republic would remain one state and that this remained an issue for a really long time Yeah, absolutely, before the Civil War.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sometimes we forget that. Um, and I think it's important to remember even in our own day that, you know, people at the beginning um, didn't, Take for granted. They weren't sure how the story was going to turn out. They yeah. didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't. They didn't necessarily, um, you know, sense a great deal of unity. Um, and one of the important points of of my book and many other pieces of historical scholarship is even when the United States has achieved unity, um, it's often quite fragile and yeah. it's contested. And people don't mean the same thing when they say "God bless the United States" and "I love the the United States of America." They have very different feelings about. What that means to them, and so even um, our long achieved unity has some—I I won't say they're fictitious elements, but elements that we just sort of um, that that are made out of air and sentiment. Um, you know, as much as as any kind of institutions. Um, now we have a lot more institutions, but in those early years they were still building those things. So, um, and those things are changeable. Um, and I think the U S civil war shows that now we, we, as a nation have been lucky, I think that the, the country managed to get back together. But, um, but as you pointed out at the beginning, the story of all those monuments in the 20th century, and we've still been fighting over a lot of the issues around race and, Uh, and power and regionalism and many other things um, up to the current day.
0: Yeah. So, you know, just this may be simplistic, but, you know, in the 1820s or 30s, when someone said Massachusetts is going to succeed, that was seditious. Today, when someone says California is going to succeed, people kind of laugh.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And, and, um, generally, I would agree with you that um, it seems rather ridiculous in the modern era. Um, I don't know. I I sort of wonder if our politics is swinging back to where it might be a real possible, like real fractiousness could be a real possibility. But I think it's important nonetheless to remember that it's not just a given. It's not something to take for granted. Right. Um, right. Yeah, right. I think that's right. It was very fragile, and um, and in part it was fragile because of the way um, the polity was constructed, and the inst- especially the institution of slavery, um, and not just the experience of, of, of enslavement, which was tremendously searing for the entire country, um, but the way that it, uh, the institutions of government sort of bent over backwards to make uh, slavery work actually mm-hmm. built in problems that were difficult to overcome.
0: Yeah, I mean, it was an honest question, like how to keep the thing together, and it was, yes. you know, people had to comp- compromise. Is the right word, and sometimes they had to compromise themselves ethically. And, exactly. And it's hard to enter the mindset of those people, and it's difficult to understand them. But it's that's that's our job.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. As historians, we're always trying to understand what people thought at the time, and it means like trying to understand. Both the circumstances and the ways of thinking, um, in, yeah, in another yeah.
0: era. They're somehow morally repugnant to us. I this is always it's exactly. very sobering. All right, so let's move to the Civil War and to Elmer Ellsworth. I did not know who Elmer Ellsworth was. Um, and Stonewall Jackson's funeral, you pair them in a chapter. Who was Elmer Ellsworth and what, why should we care about He died in 1861. Why should we care about him?
1: 1861, yes. Um, Well, he was actually um, quite quite famous uh, nationally in 1861, um, but someone whose fame has kind of diminished over time. Probably more of a regional figure now, if anything. He was from Illinois, and he was actually had been a law student of Abraham Lincoln's, um, and he had started kind of a volunteer uh, militia drill unit before the Civil War. He was someone who. Was very interested in uh, military drill. Um, And he uh, formed a Zoav unit, um, which was a certain um, which he recruited from New York City firefighters at the beginning of the US Civil War. And he um, they were mustered into the Federal Service. um, And he was um, considered by many um, the first Union officer killed in the Mm -hmm. US Civil War. There were actually a few who died before him in skirmishes in various places. but um, he has one of the claims to be the first Union officer killed um, in the capture of Alexandria, Virginia um, in May of 1861. And... In part, we should care because everyone at the time cared. Lots of people at the time cared. Um, Tens of thousands of people, especially Abraham Lincoln cared. He was very affected by the death of Elmer Ellsworth. There were um, absolutely enormous funeral pageants, um, all kinds of um, mourning. He was given a funeral in the White House. He was paraded through Washington, Mm D.C. His body was taken all the way to his hometown in uh, New York State, um, given given big celebrations in New York city and various places along the way. Um, it was covered in, you know, gallons and gallons of ink, um, Partly it's an interesting story because he was killed not in the actual skirmish of capturing Alexandria, Virginia, which was fairly easy militarily, but actually removing a giant Confederate national flag from the top of the Marshall House Hotel, where a pro-Confederate hotel keeper had put this flag on the top of his hotel. And um, Ellsworth was shot by the hotel keeper named James Jackson, and um, his aide, Francis Brownell, um, actually killed killed the hotel keeper. So is this kind of skirmish over a Confederate flag. It became tremendously symbolic. It's also very interesting because they managed to have all of this funeral pageantry and tears and uh, celebration of Elmer Ellsworth as a, as a lost potential hero of the future um, right at the beginning of the Civil War when they did not understand pretty much at all that so many hundreds of thousands of people yeah, would th- this die was in my the question. Civil war yeah
0: this was this was they did not know what was coming
1: no exactly right they another example of they didn't know what was coming because you certainly they figured out fairly soon thereafter like you could not uh, celebrate the death of even every famous officer um, like this because it was it was simply too much too many people were killed and sacrificed, and too many people were killed in much bloodier, uh, much harder-fought conflicts, um, although plenty of symbolism to spare. Um, But Ellsworth was was seen as a great hero in the North and as an, quote, assassin in the South, uh, someone who uh, despoiled the Confederate flag. And so he had this kind of hero-villain duality that made him into a a big popular cultural figure. Mm -hmm. And he was beloved of Abraham Lincoln. That's, That's another fact.
0: Yeah. So let's move on to Stonewall Jackson. People probably some people probably know who Stonewall Jackson was. He died in 1863 at Chancellorsville. Yes. uh, And and uh, how how was he commemorated uh, in the South?
1: Yes, well, um, he was uh, commemorated. I would say this, as much and as well as uh, the Confederates could in the midst of 1863, because they were, um, uh, Robert E. Lee, for instance, was fearful that if they took too much time off or spent too much, uh, too many men to go with uh, Jackson's body, um, that they were still in the middle of a campaign and that it right. would cause military troubles. There were shortages of paper. The press was under... Um, under lots of pressure, et cetera. So, uh, but nonetheless, his body was uh, taken from um, the site where he died, um, near Chancellorsville to, um, to Richmond on a special train. Um, he was given essentially a Confederate state funeral um, in the city of Richmond. Um, and then he was transported to Lexington, Virginia, um, where he was buried. And then his grave site became um, the site of pilgrimage. You mm-hmm. can say kind of almost religious fervor pilgrimage, um, it's very near uh, Virginia Military Institute, where where he was um, on the faculty, um, and where he was much celebrated. And uh, it became uh, one of the sources of Confederate Memorial Day was uh, people visiting Stonewall Jackson's gravesite, um, and it is still a, a place of of importance and symbolic importance um, in Confederate memory um, there in Lexington. So, mm-hmm. um, so he was he was given a large. Uh, funeral. Now, large in the Confederacy by the standards of what was possible in 1863. And one of the things that's interesting is to see an actual tension over um, a lot of Confederates feeling like we wish we could pay him even more respect, but the respect in our hearts will have to do. Uh, So a lot of writing um, in people's diaries and letters about um, how much he would be missed. And also the notion that um, the question of maybe the Confederacy. Uh, would be more threatened because of his actual absence, um, because Mm -hmm. of his military prowess as a commander.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's move on to, uh, we're actually... Uh, after the war now, and George Peabody, we talked a little bit in the pre-interview about Peabody. It turns out that my grandparents lived in a town called Peabody, Kansas. I never understood why it was called Peabody, but now I do. Um, George Peabody, who, who was he, and and what do we learn from his funeral?
1: Yeah, George Peabody. He was um, an American um, who was basically tremendously wealthy, um, and he lived for most of his career and life in England, in London, and he was kind of an international financier um, Mm. sort of a pre-industrial, proto-industrial magnet. Um, And he was someone who um, (laughs) gave some support to the U.S. Civil War. He was from New England, um, from what is now known as Peabody, Massachusetts, in his honor. And um, he was well known as a philanthropist. And basically, he dispensed large amounts of his fortune uh, before the great era of philanthropy that people right. know about Carnegie much before... before his time. Exactly. Carnegie before his time. And he did that both in England and in the United States. Um, he was also somewhat controversial because um, he, right after the Civil War, he gave a lot of money to um Post Confederate Southerner institutions, especially institutions of education. And um, he had an especial fondness for um, what then became what is now Washington and Lee University, um, was then Washington College that Robert E. Lee was the president of. Um, and he sort of bailed them out with various financial contributions. And he was controversial because he was seen, he advocated uh, basically forgiveness for the Confederates. And some um, former Union advocates. And Northerner politicians, Northerners, saw him as too forgiving of the Confederates. And there's a lot of uh, argument over whether um, he was pro-Confederate or not. Um, He also then, um, in his funeral and in his life, becomes um, something of a figure of quote unquote, forgiveness between the United States and Great Britain, whose diplomatic and sort of general cultural relationship had been somewhat fractured by the U.S. Civil War because certain elements in the British government had given quite a bit of um, naval and financial help to the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. And so um, when George Peabody dies, Um, In England, he is first given a huge funeral in Westminster Abbey, um, basically (laughs) almost a state funeral, um, and then put on a um, British ship of war, accompanied by a U.S. ship of war, um, and shipped across the ocean back to New England for burial, where he is given huge funerals in the United States. And it becomes a pageant, um, a, a large funeral pageant that allows people to work through their kind of issues about, well, how much... Should the North forgive the South? How much should the Confederacy be forgiven, and can it be seen as this great, like symbol of uh, sort of reunification of the traditional friends uh, between the United States and Great Britain? Um, and it, it's it's a it's an interesting story and quite a huge funeral as well. And for the first time, you also see a little bit of a disagreement around the edges. Well, not the very first time because some abolitionists had objected to Henry Clay, for instance, but. Um, some people questioning, you know, maybe we shouldn't be spending all this money on these giant funerals when, you know, Peabody himself did a lot to help the poor. Maybe there are other ways we could spend these funds rather than huge parades and monuments and fabric and all kinds of things that cost money.
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, you pair Peabody with uh, somebody everybody has heard of, and that is Robert E. Lee. He died in 1870 in Lexington, Virginia. This is a much harder sell in terms of (laughs) bringing the union together. How how did they massage this?
1: It is. And and it's interesting because, um, well, two things. One is, um, there's a lot when, when Robert E. Lee died, um, there isn't as much actual physical funeral, but there's a huge amount. I'm sure you can imagine, um, of, of, uh, sort of ink that is spilled lots of arguments about what does it mean? Um, what, what did his life mean? Um, a lot of Northern newspapers, even ones that were Republican, you know, that supported uh, Reconstruction, um, really talk about Robert E. Lee's virtues. Um, some of them say, well, it's too bad he was a traitor, but what a great man he was. Uh, what a great man he was. So it's 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 the beginning of the kind of um, valorization of Robert E. Lee, even in some of the institutions, Northern institutions. And so it's an important point about um, Reconstruction, which is um, a lot of things about Reconstruction failed because um, Northerners lost their political commitment to keep them going. And so you can kind of see that cracking starting. Um, Sometimes people erroneously Emphasize, you know, how um, how quiet Lee had been in the post-war period, or you know, they, they spin versions of his life in various ways. Um, the the other On the other side of it, you see something that has also been very important in subsequent decades, which is um, a lot of Confederates talking about what a great American Lee was. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even though he fought against the United States of America, and that of course he would join the pantheon of heroes: um, George Washington, Robert E. Lee. Um, that he, that his story was part of the American story. And, um, it, it becomes, um, important to what becomes shortly thereafter the lost cause mythology of, you know, uh, it's, it was just a doomed great cause for the Confederacy so-called. Um, and, Mm -hmm. you know, if not for that, you know, this great man, he too would have been this. So it's, it's a really interesting sort of like the question of, um, How do you turn Robert E. Lee into a hero? But one thing that I really emphasize and I try to look at carefully throughout the book is the ways that Confederate nationalism and this pro-Confederate heroicizing of people like Robert E. Lee is actually part of the history of the United States and that the post-Civil War sense of, of the United States national identity sometimes incorporates uh pro-Confederate notions. And um, you know, you it, and it's contested. I mean, not everybody agrees about that. Certainly, for instance, um, black people don't agree about yeah. that in the in the time period. And and um those who supported black rights were very skeptical of this kind of early rehabilitation of Lee. But um that too is part of the story, like how that contestation happens. And when he died, it was, it was part of the thing. It, it's kind of what happens in many of these funerals, because when someone dies, it's kind of the moment when people speak well of them, right? It's yes. the notion is not to uh, talk about how bad eulogy, the person, right.
0: Whatever the opposite of eulogy. Yes,
1: right. Is. And, and it, it goes back to a classical tradition. I mean, we don't speak ill of the dead. It's yeah. the notion of the public virtues of the person. Um, but there are problems with that. If you're, if one of the questions you're trying to come up with is like, okay, this person turned against his country how do you rehabilitate that so that's why the the funerals are and the the kind of eulogies for lee are so important
0: yeah one of the things i found remarkable is that again i'm not an expert on american history but it stuck when i think of robert e lee i think oh what a great man <laughs>
1: Yeah, and, and uh, yeah. We, can look, we can look to our own day when um, I people I was taught have,
0: that. I did push I yeah. out of my own. No,
1: and, and certainly, for instance, um, you were talking about uh, Civil War memorials. I mean, a lot. the reason we have controversy now over um, taking down memorials to Robert E. Lee, for instance, is many of them, and they were put up, you know, uh, largely in the 1890s. And yeah, after, yeah, this is amazing. they weren't put yeah. up in- 1868 or even 1870, yeah. when there were there were, it did start in 1870 when he died, but the big public memorials um, really uh, came later, and that's because this conversation about um, greatness continued, and and yeah, because yeah. it spoke to the politics of the later days, yeah. they were using the symbol of Robert E. Lee to say something about their current day.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I get that. Um, the, the, the narrative is changing. Let's put it that way. I've now been informed about Robert E. Lee. So I <laughs> yes, won't say I figured. Uh, um, so let's move on to Charles Sumner and um, Joseph Johnson's Charles Sumner, maybe you'll have heard of him. He dies in 1874. Uh, and what do we learn from his funeral?
1: Well, Charles Sumner was um, a Massachusetts senator and um, had been a great advocate of um, Black rights um, against slavery and uh, Black voting rights and many other things in Reconstruction. Um, he he had some stumbles in late in his career, um, partly because he opposed um, Ulysses S. Grant in the 1872 presidential election. Um, and really what we learn is that... Um, try as they might, major figures cannot control their own memory. And Sumner, uh, advocated for forgetting some of the civil war, kind of muting its memory. And, um, he did that through um, a particular resolution to not include, uh, civil war battle flags in a particular kind of federal register. And it, it just blew up. It's a kind of, it kind of went viral, you know, as we would see today, that sort of term. Um, And basically, uh, it took up a lot of, it took away a lot of attention from his commemoration as this kind of um, fighter for Black rights and for um, the kind of heart of the abolitionist cause and then the the continued fight for Black equality. Um, And it turned into a fight over civil war flags and remembrance of the civil war. And he wanted memory to be a certain way and he couldn't have it that way. And instead he became a symbol of the kind of continued contestation over civil war memory. Um, lots of black preachers and black political figures, uh, people like Frederick Douglass, um, Turner, many other people, um, you know, try to continue um, to use Sumner as a symbol of white people who were willing to fight for black rights. Um, and there's a whole question about, you know, will that continue now that Sumner is dead? Uh, it's kind of one of these perennial questions. What mm-hmm. happens now that this person is gone? Um, but really, it's, it's a, a lesson about um, no one person can really control the consequences of their own memorialization after they die or the consequences of some war memory.
0: Was was Sumner hated in the South? I mean, did he Oh, uh, very hated.
1: Oh my yeah. gosh. Um, I mean, he he, you know, famously was beaten on the floor of the yeah, US Senate, yeah, right, no, so, by yeah. Preston Brooks um in the run-up to the Civil War. And he was seen as a an absolute villain. Um, yeah, and, and one of the interesting stories in the in the book is um about how um even a few people in the South, um, particularly uh Uh, Mississippi Congressman Lucius Lamar um, actually uh, eulogized Sumner um, after his death and was attacked for doing so mm. but he explained like look number one um, I told you this flag controversy Sumner kind of was saying things on positive to the post-confederate side so we need to seize on that and number two like right now everyone will listen to us and if we look magnanimous towards Sumner it will you know it'll kind of make us look good but but it, it was interesting to see kind of how his reputation shifted over time mm-hmm. um, and it's it's I think probably a little hard for us to appreciate today but he was so Someone who um, really embodied that fight over black rights in the U.S. Senate, Um, because there were no there were no uh, black senators, obviously, before uh, the Civil War, even immediately after in the Senate. And so um, it was it it was really he was a lightning rod for that kind of controversy.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, He's done pretty well compared to Robert E. Lee in recent memory.
1: In, uh, yeah, but again, it might depend who you ask. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah I, see, I
0: should call my sister in Alabama, see what she
1: and, says. And, and there are lots of people who revere uh, revere Robert E. Lee today, and lots yeah. of people who don't know who Charles Sumner is. So yeah, it's, yeah. it depends who you ask.
0: Yeah. So who is Joseph Johnson? He died in 1891 in D.C. Yeah, Uh,
1: Joseph Johnston was a very important uh, Confederate general um, and one of the immediate subordinates to Robert E. Lee and um, somewhat controversial um, in his command decisions. And um, but an important general. And he was someone who then lived a long time after the war. As you said, he died in 1891 and took part in um, a lot of different festivals of uh, commemoration, ventures. veterans' gatherings, monuments, and he importantly served as a pallbearer at a lot of other funerals for civil war generals and especially for union civil war generals. So he, he was interesting because he's a figure, both of, of post-Confederate nationalism. He never apologized for the war. He still supported the Confederacy. Um, but he also emphasized reconciliation and um, he served in the U S government um, after, after reconstruction was over. And um, yeah, but again, his own funeral couldn't be controlled. He his funeral shows how um even though he wanted to valorize certain parts of the confederacy and have the nation engage in a, a a narrative by which confederates were forgiven and the 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 regions were reconciled um that isn't how it works out in the particularities of his own funeral. Um because um people can't control the memory. That's kind of the theme of that chapter.
0: Yeah, you mentioned uh, apologizing for the civil war. Did did Confederate
1: generals and statesmen apologize? Not much. No. Um, no. Is there the, any sort of outpouring like the, that? I, yeah. The no, um, <laughs> not really. Not a lot of apologies. Um, <laughs> No, <laughs> Yeah, I no. just
0: wondered, I, I just, yeah, I, I would think it would be very uncharacteristic. No,
1: and I mean, there are definitely, I mean, there are lots of questions about um, amnesty that's granted to former Confederates and the terms of amnesty and, you know, m- you know, is there some kind of remorse involved, but not, not really. There's not so, you know, nothing like an apology yeah. tour that we would see today. Yeah. Right. Um, exactly. That's what and, I was but thinking. There, there were a few, you know, there were a few um, who, um, who seemed more pro Northern or pro U S or pro reunited United States um, after the war. And some of them, you know, became controversial, but they didn't, um, they still didn't tend to apologize. I don't think that's a thing really. Yeah.
0: I was thinking about the and our tendency to apologize for everything these days. Um, I can see why they might not do that. Yeah. So uh, let's move on to um, Frederick Douglass. People know who Frederick Douglass was, but why don't you remind us he dies in 1895. Yeah. And uh, what do we learn from his funeral?
1: Well, he, he's, um, of course, one of the most famous and important uh, Black activists of the 19th century, if not of all of U.S. history, or probably of all of U.S. history. Um, he was formerly enslaved. Um, he freed himself. He had been one of the most prominent abolitionists before the war. He was um, a big supporter of the Union cause in the Civil War, um, and he became... Um, uh, associated with the U.S. government. He served in a number of roles. He was never elected to office, but he um, was a diplomat to the country of Haiti, among other appointed positions, um, and continued to be a huge advocate for Black rights until the end of his life in 1895, um, arguing against lynching and you know working for Black equality. Um, his funeral um, in 1895 is very, very important, for one thing, because it was so big and it happened. And it's the first time that a Black American uh, merits, quote unquote, this level of national uh, praise and commemoration. Even in the South, there is commemoration um, um, of Frederick Douglass's death. Um, He also received a giant funeral in Washington, D.C., though um, importantly, was blocked from lying in state in the U.S. Capitol, um, Mm. which a few people did propose, but he was not able to do that. Um, He was then processed on a special train to um, his uh, previous home in Rochester, New York, where he was buried also a huge funeral in Rochester and lots of coverage of that and the beginnings of monuments to him and really a debate about the legacy of Frederick Douglass and it becomes a debate about the legacy of abolitionism and black equality, um, both of which he had posed himself as a symbol of in his own writing and political work. So, Mm -hmm. um, And Douglas himself, interestingly, he's actually a figure throughout the book because he is someone who frequently commented on other people's funerals (laughs) and talked about what a disgrace it was that we were mourning Robert E. Lee. He said the country was crying crocodile tears over Robert E. Lee. So it's then interesting to see how... um, uh, the, the ritual was flexible enough to include, basically, uh, uh, to recognize that uh, a Black man could also be a hero on this level, a national hero. But there is backlash, and that's one of the ironies of the story, is that um, white supremacists in several places, perhaps most notably in North Carolina, um, really uh, take the opportunity to uh, to do some damage and uh, express express themselves in the wake of Frederick Douglass' funeral and his mourning as well. So in um, 1895 is, of course, um, when uh, Jim Crow segregation is really uh, getting started mm-hmm. in earnest and lynching was on the huge rise and kind of a whole era of late 19th and then into the 20th century, a new era of repression of Black Americans is really uh adding fuel to the racist fire and so um a debate about Douglas and his demise um is a debate about those things and the role of the civil war memory in that it, did the civil war mean anything after all what about the end of slavery etc
0: yeah so the final person that you deal with in the book is Winnie Davis, and I found this absolutely fascinating. Is there a biography of Winnie Davis? Somebody should write a biography. There is, yeah, yeah, there is
1: a uh, there is a quite a good biography of Winnie Davis actually, um, though it, it doesn't talk much about her funeral, but about the rest of her life. Yeah, it's very interesting. It's
0: a, an absolutely fascinating figure. You can see a lot of the issues that we're dealing with today in Winnie Davis's activity. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So she yeah. was
1: the the um, daughter of Jefferson Davis, youngest daughter of Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederacy. She was born during the U.S. Civil War um, in the so-called Confederate White House. Um, and um Yet she was someone kind of one of these figures you you sort of asked about generals, but she's someone who um, then lived in the North for after the war. And um, also some of the time in Europe and she wrote for Northern newspapers and she wrote novels and um, her mother, uh, Verena Davis um, was often accused by some Southern veterans organizations and others of being too pro-union and that she had kind of betrayed the South by moving to the North. Um, In any case, uh, Winnie Davis died at a fairly young age. Um, She was um, just in her thirties and she passed away and her body then was put on a special train from um, Rhode Island where she passed away down to Richmond, where she was given um, again, kind of a, a post-state funeral. Um, And she was buried in Hollywood cemetery um, next to her father. Um, And she was, um, had been dubbed uh, during a tour she took with her father uh, before he died, the daughter of the Confederacy. Yeah. This is fascinating. Uh, Kind of her title, the daughter of the Confederacy. Um, The, the phrase then is adopted by um, the organization, the daughters of the Confederacy, the United daughters of the Confederacy, UDC, which was in the late 19th and early 20th century. It still exists. Um, One of the most important organizations, most virulent organizations of promotion, a pro-Confederate yep. uh, memory. Um, and it took its name from her nickname, the daughter of the Confederacy. And so um, it's this, this it several things are interesting and important. First of all, that she's one of the few women who merited, again, a large public funeral of this kind. There are a few others that happened after her in 1898, but um, after 1898, but she's kind of one of the first times a woman gets anything um, even remotely as large as all the other men who are in my book. Um, and uh, it's this argument over um, whether the wounds of the the war are healed. Um, is it this going to be this super virulent lost cause pro confederacy um, sentiment that will take over the culture of the post confederate um, time, or um, in another theme, uh, it's just after the Spanish American War has concluded, um, and um, can the has the country totally reunited and kind of gotten over the Civil War in the interest of, I don't know, becoming fighting new imperialist wars as a reunited country, uh, for <laughs> instance. So there, and there has been a lot of interesting work on that theme of how the Spanish-American War, um, Nina Silber, notably, and other scholars have worked on that um, for decades, of how the Spanish-American War sort of presented this uh, reunified North and South to kind of move into the 20th century on a different footing. And so Winnie Davis is is um, kind of crystallizes that for a moment with her funeral rituals in 1898.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this brings us to the the period of the 1890s and early 20th century. And I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about what I perceive as a spate of monument building in, in, in honor of, southern figures of, of confederate figures
1: yeah a lot of it is intentional and kind of comes out of this this organizing of united daughters of the confederacy of sons of confederate veterans of other um organizations A kind of a kind of virulence. so it's interesting because this is what we see in winnie davis's funeral also happens then subsequently in these yeah. monuments, which is the simultaneous uh, virulent pro-Confederate, um, let's put up these monuments, even in places like Kentucky that were border states that were very contested or, you know, even even in some um, states that were other states that were still in the Union, but especially in places like Richmond, that was the capital of the Confederacy, um, will put up, um, you know, the most laudatory possible uh, pro-Confederate monuments to generals and to um, to average soldiers. But simultaneously, we will emphasize how the country is reunited and how now going into the 20th century, um, everything is healed. So it's kind of the ability to have... Um, lost cause mythology right alongside, uh, God bless the United States of America, and uh, kind of fusing those two together. And then the story of those those two things, um, we'll see how that, it, it spins through the 20th century up until the current day. Um, and again, meeting the political moment. A lot of it also has to do with Propping up than the support of organizations like that, but also just generally of uh, kind of suppressing the um, notion that slavery was the cause of the war, suppressing the um, the power that could potentially have been gained by Black Americans during and after the Civil War. Um, the it's not a coincidence that it, it comes at the time when um, you know voting rights are being um, redacted for Black people who had regained them in many places um, after the war um, and during lynchings, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the kind of cultural and memory component of the the kind of uh, reemergence of white supremacy with a vengeance at the end of the 19th century. And um, there's also been a lot of work by many other scholars about um, how the memory of "quote the common soldier." So now I'm not talking about statues to Robert E. Lee, but statues to the Civil War soldier, memorials to the Civil War soldier, which are in many, many, many communities all over oh, yeah, the United States. Yeah, all over. The, I mean, right? yeah, you go
0: any place in New England, you're going to find a Civil right. War memorial. Right, um,
1: and how that um, uh, David Blight, among others, but he's sort of the big figure in this in this um, history, um, has. Talked about and and also the scholar of monuments Kirk Savage um, talks about how the figure of the standing soldier the memorial to yeah, the average soldier <laughs> right whether he is a northern soldier or a southern soldier they look very similar they're very much the same and they're all white and yeah. they um, they kind of emphasize a sort of bland common uh, sort of. Caucasified sacrifice in the Civil War that makes it about this common sacrifice somehow, even though they were fighting each other, um, and it, it it sort of helps the culture mute the actual debates about um, Black power and the hundreds of thousands of Black soldiers who served in the Union military, et cetera, et cetera. So it's it's basically um, the monuments are um, a. S- In many, many cases, a symptom of the reemergence of white supremacy and its extreme power in various forms in various communities, Um, more virulent, less virulent. But it's 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 I've
0: traveled a lot over the United States and you do in in a lot of small towns. uh, You will see these monuments of the single standing soldier with the rifle and the bayonet. They're incredibly stereotyped. Yeah. You you just change the uniform and it's the same.
1: Well, I mean, that was literally what people did. You could order it from a catalog and like in some parts (laughs) of the catalog, it it had Confederate uniforms and in some parts it had Union uniforms. So, and that's not to say that each community that erected those statues, you know, was trying to build a monument to white supremacy, but just that that's the way the collection of monuments functioned right it's it's a different Mm -hmm. intention and overall cultural effect and political effect are not always the same thing and that's something important to keep keep in, in mind Um, In the in the 20th century story. But it's uh, it's it's a really interesting thing. And but sometimes it was intentional. The United Daughters of the Confederacy was very intentional. They had monument building as part of they also had, um, uh, you know, they introduced what they called catechisms in southern education, public education, private education um, about the Confederacy, they they tried to erect monuments of the quote so-called loyal slave um, in many communities around the South. I mean, they were they really tried on purpose. Um, again, lots of other historians have looked into this, but um, but yeah, my my piece is just to kind of contribute that, like see how Winnie Davis. Um, help to kick all that off. Yeah, that's, that's, that's
0: why I was especially interested in Winnie Davis. Well, it's a terrific book, and I want to thank you so much for being with us today. We have kind of a traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is what are you working on now?
1: Um, Great, yeah. Um, I am um, working as much as COVID allows um, on a new project, um, which is about the Bunker Hill Monument. So it's interesting that you asked about monuments. Um, So we now live in an age of contested monuments, controversies over monuments, questions about what monuments represent, who they represent, are they malleable enough to... Can we even have a hero in today's world? Um, You know, how do we deal with the legacies of imperialism, slavery, racism, et cetera? And so um, I'm returning to a topic I've looked at before, which is the Bunker Hill Monument, which is a monument to the Battle of Bunker Hill, one of the first battles of the Revolutionary War in 1775. Um, And I'm going to examine moments in that monument's history um, uh, from 17, um, well, it was First started in 1825, but there were some precursors. So really? from, the beginning of the, wow. yeah, from the beginning of the 19th century um, until today, uh, moments of controversy, the monument has always been contested. There have always been um, people who disagreed about what it should mean and who it should stand for and um, how it should function in the landscape and the city of Boston, um, what it meant for a nation during the Civil War. Was it a symbol of the North only? Was it something the Confederates um, should feel? here um, how did the, so sort of how did the memory of the American Revolution shift over time, but also the fact that monuments have always been controversial and I want to use that as a way to contribute to our current conversation about monuments um, and to kind of look and see, oh, what do these past controversies have to tell us? So I'm I'm turning to the Bunker Hill Monument and I think it'll be great because um, it, it does also bring together a lot of these themes that I'm interested in.
0: The, 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 the same historian who I mentioned earlier, the historian earlier public he he is a historian of boston and one of the things he said to me which really shocked me is that boston kind of considered itself a nation state and was not particularly interested in the rest <laughs> of the american project
1: <laughs> yes, uh, in some ways, yes. So uh, that would that would uh, read with the Bunker Hill Monument. So, for instance, when the uh, founders of the Monument Association first started it, uh, they only wanted to accept financial contributions from Massachusetts residents yeah. and Massachusetts sort of citizens. Uh, they did go outside Boston, but uh, Massachusetts only. Even though lots and lots of other people, as far as South Carolina, wanted to contribute to the project because they saw it as a national monument, um, but um, the. one One of the downsides of their um, sort of Boston uh, colonialism or I don't know uh, localism, shall we say, um, it was that it took them decades to raise enough money to actually build the thing. (laughs) Um, It went unbuilt for quite a few decades. So that's actually part of the story, too, is like, how do you even fund a monument like this? What should it look like? Um, Is it a monument to one person or to many people? Um, And uh, same. So, yes, I think that's that's correct. And actually, yeah, this self perception okay. of Bostonians and interestingly, in the case of the Bunker Hill Monument, Charlestown um, first yes. as a Charleston, first, Charlestown first as a separate entity from Boston, and then it's incorporated into Boston in the in the later in the 20th century. Um, So that's an interesting story in and of itself, even though it also resonates for the whole country and for the American Revolution. So that's that's what I'm turning to next and still looking at material culture, monuments, memory, and really um, how memory and the physical world we construct contributes to national identity and political fighting and fights over racism and class and all kinds of other things in the United States.
0: That sounds absolutely fascinating. Let me tell everybody we've been talking to Sarah Purcell. She's a professor at Grinnell College. And this is the Grinnell College Authors and Artists Podcast. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor of the New Books Network. And let me say, first of all, thank you very much, Sarah, for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Marshall. I really appreciate it. it was absolutely. fun.
0: Absolutely. And let me uh, say to all the listeners, thank you. And we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.